0: Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. I'm Serena Wilson, a training manager at DCS, and I'm your host for this edition. In this edition of DCS Talks, we will discuss confidentiality and building teams with families that we serve. Children, youth, and families involved with DCS have the right to privacy of their records and personal information. DCS has a coordinated system of policies and practices that guide confidential information sharing throughout policies that are already in DCS Chapter 31, which are on our DCS public website and available for all citizens to view. Recently, DCS leadership and staff took a deeper look into ways to maintain confidentiality. The product of this analysis is a supplement to these policies, and it contains a series of discussions about confidentiality with DCS employees. To tell us more about the focus on this confidentiality and building trust with the families we serve, we have the leaders of this initiative here to tell us more. Sammy Mayfair, one of our DCS attorneys, is the Senior Associate Counsel at DCS. We also have Lindsay Coleman, who is the Director of Permanency Planning in the Office of Child Programs. Ms. Mayfair, Ms. Coleman, welcome to DCS Talk.
1: Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, yes,
0: thank Thank you for having us. We're excited to have this opportunity to chat with you. Great. And such an important topic. Miss Mayfair us about your current role at DCS and some of your professional experiences that brought you into child welfare.
2: Sure. This will be my 10th year with the department. I'm currently in the role of Senior Associate Counsel, so I work in Nashville at our central office. I provide ongoing legal advice on a variety of topics and provide support to the regions as needed. Before I came to central office, I was a field attorney out in the East region, and then I was a supervising attorney in the Mid-Cumberland region. Prior to my career with DCS, I was in private practice and I did family law and I was served in juvenile court as a guardian ad litem and a parent's attorney. That's sort of the the natural segue, so to speak, into becoming an agency attorney.
0: You had a lot of direct work with our case managers and other child welfare professionals, as well as the families that we serve. So in many families, there are many people that play a lot of different roles. For instance, I have an who's not really my aunt, she's my mother's best friend. And while she is part of our family, she is not related to me biologically. Could you tell our listeners why a legal definition for the legal status is actually required to share information at DCS?
2: Sure. The reason we have to identify the legal status of the individuals involved in our cases is because that determines what information can be shared with those persons. Under state law, federal law, and our own policies, you have to meet certain criteria to be able to gain access to our confidential record. All of the records at DCS are confidential. There are a number of other confidentiality statutes that come into play. Knowing the legal status helps to determine what information may be shared. An individual, for example, the aunt that you described, they could be considered an other involved adult, but because they're not a biological relative, that does impact their status and the information that we could share with that individual if, if a parent wanted to invite that individual into the child and family team. Similarly, too, with the parents themselves, we have to determine the legal status of that parent to determine what information we can provide. There is a big difference between being a married parent, a legal parent, because by virtue of being married, versus someone who's only named on the birth certificate. If there's no court order establishing custody, then you're not entitled to the same amount of information that someone who has a custody order would
0: have. Essentially, even though at DCS, we really want to build family Teams and have lots of support there. It is by law very important that we can share personal information that we deal with at DCS with family members that have a legal status that is related to the child. Exactly. So that's why it's important when right at the beginning
2: of a case to sort of determine who all your players are and how they are actually related to the child. Obviously, just because someone is not related doesn't mean that they can't be a support to that family. So we do want to engage them in case planning if the family thinks wants them on their team. It impacts what we can tell them.
0: The heart of working on engagement and confidentiality is that we only want to share private information with people that have a legal relationship to the child and family. Can you provide some examples of the distinctions made by legal definitions? think you were touching on that, especially with fathers and putative fathers, the father has involvement and does not live with the mother, what kind of information could we share? There are a couple different buckets, so to speak, that folks fall into when we're looking at the
2: legal status of parents. So as I mentioned, if parents are married, currently married, they are under the law joint custodians of any child. So they would be entitled to all information about that child unless they're named as an alleged perpetrator. Under our confidentiality statutes, Alleged perpetrators are not entitled to the records pertaining to that child that they're alleged to be a perpetrator of. Mm-hmm. Also you can have a circumstance where parents are not married, but there is a custody order. So an actual order from a court giving custody to an individual, they would also be entitled to all of that information. When you have circumstances where perhaps there's not a custody order, as father has signed a voluntary acknowledgement of a father appears on the birth certificate, those are presumed legal parents. That's a little different under the law than your full-on legal parents if you're married or have a custody order. You're not entitled to as much information. If you are looking at placing a child with a presumptive legal parent, then that individual would be entitled to information that was necessary to provide for the care of the child. If upcoming doctor's appointment, if the child is on medication, that person would get that information so they would be able to administer the medication. That health information that they would be entitled to receive would be that specifically around what would be needed to care for the child. They could also have information regarding the DCS involvement. You would have to respect the HIPAA privacy rights of the other parent. So they would not be entitled to information about mom. We're looking at thing with the father that's on the birth certificate. Now, there's also a third category, which is an alleged father or sometimes called a putative father. That's someone who's just been named as the parent of the child but hasn't done any steps to be established as a legal parent. That's the circumstance where maybe mom says, well, I believe John. Doe is the father of this child, but John Doe is not on the birth certificate, has not signed a voluntary acknowledgement of paternity, or has not gone to court to establish parentage, then that is an alleged father. And so they're basically treated under the law like another involved adult, because they don't have those legal rights to information about the child, unless we were looking at placing the child there. However, they do still need to be involved in the case because they have been named as an alleged parent, and we have an obligation to work with those individuals as well. But we could only share limited information of our involvement, inviting them to a child and family team meeting, inviting them to the court, dates, those types of things. But limited information can be shared about the underlying
0: case. If a, say, if a mother is suffering from substance use disorder, That's actually private information under HIPAA, and we wouldn't provide that information to other family members because that's her health information. While we do want to build a family team and be as transparent as possible. We also want to build the trust of all the people in the family and maintain confidentiality of their health information. And so,
2: yes, and actually, so there's a variety of laws that come into play, too, when you're talking mm-hmm. about protect health information or what we call PHI. So, as you mentioned, there is HIPAA, and what that stands for is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And so, what that does is it does set these minimum standards for confidentiality and um, controls the release of that protected health information. There's also special law pertaining to mental health records and substance abuse records. So when you're talking about an individual that has substance use disorder, those records are given a higher level of protection as well, even than regular medical records. Oh, okay. So the only way to release that information is by consent from the individual or a court order authorizing the release.
0: That is important because we do want to, again, build trust while we help support everyone in the family. So it's this very nuanced fine line between building trust and maintaining confidentiality. It's important to know the legal ramifications. So thank you so much, Ms. Mayfair. With families, we ask that all the information is shared at a meeting. So, if anyone comes to a meeting at DCS Week, we ask them to sign a confidentiality form. As a state agency, we're also HIPAA compliant, and then there are other laws that you mentioned as well, Ms. Mayfair. Can you explain the difference between our confidentiality form that is in a family meeting and the HIPAA form. Sometimes I know there's confusion with that. Right. There's a very big distinction between those two forms.
2: So when we're talking about a confidentiality form versus the authorization for release of information, under state law, all of our records, as I mentioned, concerning reports of child abuse and neglect are private and confidential. That confidentiality form is to allow us to discuss those. So even those folks that have a legitimate reason to request the information, example, a non-perpetrator parent, under our statutes, they are only entitled to a restricted access to records, if at all. And so, the confidentiality form allows us to discuss the case and that all of the parties are agreeing to maintain the privacy of the information discussed. So, since they are receiving that access, so to speak, to confidential information, They're just agreeing that they're gonna maintain the confidentiality of what they've been provided. The authorization form is different because that is a specific release of information form that is required under HIPAA, because you do have to have a proper authorization to release or to disclose protected health information. So that authorization is what actually allows us to obtain records It's the individual is controlling the release of their protected health information. And so when we are going to discuss protected health information, we either need to have that release form signed by the individual or the individual can talk about it, asking a parent if they're willing to discuss what they talked about at their mental health assessment or asking the parent if they want to talk about what the recommendations were of their alcohol and drug assessment. Because if the parent releases the information, it's their own information to release, and they can do that. But otherwise, we have to have their consent to discuss that information.
0: I appreciate that distinction and that 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 is in place because that's how we all would want to be treated. All of our policies are based on federal and state law. Can you tell our listeners about some of those state and federal laws? Sure.
2: I've touched on some of them as we've been talking. There are a number of laws that pertain to confidentiality that come into play with our cases. Under Title 37 of the Tennessee Code, all information and records about persons receiving services from the department are confidential. Those aren't subject to disclosure unless there is an exception that exists in the statute. So that's all of our records. So that's the child abuse records, that's the foster care records, anything about a child or family receiving services. As we've mentioned, there's HIPAA, which does establish those minimum standards for confidentiality and the release of protected health information. There are specific statutes pertaining to mental health records and substance abuse records regarding the higher level of protection for the dissemination of those records, and that applies to anyone 16 or older. So, if we have young adults that are in custody that may be receiving mental health treatment or substance use treatment, if that child is over 16 that child has to consent to the release of that information, or we have to have a court order authorizing the release of that information. As I mentioned, if you are named as an alleged perpetrator in a child abuse investigation, you are not entitled to records about the alleged child. One thing that's also very important is we have multiple statutes that protect the identity of the referent of child abuse. So, if Mm. the individual that has made a referral to the department with allegations of child abuse or neglect, that is... Confidential and cannot be disclosed. It is a crime to release the name of the referring a mm-hmm. child abuse investigation. There is only. One very limited exception to that, and that is when there is a specific subpoena, not even just any regular subpoena we get. It's a very specialized process and a very special subpoena that has to come for that able to be released. We never release the identity of the referent. And then, with again, with our children who are older, under Tennessee law, if a child is 14 or older, they're presumed to be able to consent to their own medical care. So if you do have a circumstance where maybe a 15 year old consented to to receive medical care, they control the release of the records. So it's important to see who consented to the treatment because that, that's who you really have to obtain consent from. So if mom consented to a child having treatment, you know, you may need to get mom's consent to get records. If the child consented to that treatment, you would have to get that child to release those records. There are also some statutes that allow Healthcare providers to treat minors without the consent of a parent or guardian, and those are going to be around substance abuse treatment and some of birth control and reproductive health services. And again, if, if a youth receives those services, the youth, based on his or her own consent, the youth is the one that's going to control the disclosure of that information. There are two other statutes that I just want to mention because they play into confidentiality and privacy as well. There is an act called FERPA which is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. And so that actually Mm -hmm. protects the privacy of student education records. Those records, you have to have a release of information to get students' records, unless there's a health or safety emergency that allows the school to release those without the consent or a subpoena. And we also have the Foster Parent Bill of Rights in Tennessee, which statutorily entitles foster parents to receive certain information about children being placed into their home, both before the children is placed to make a determination about whether or not to take the child and after the child is placed. So that allows us to release certain information that we wouldn't otherwise be able to release, but because there is a statute that authorizes it.
0: Even though I've heard about these different laws that you describe, knowing that you and your staff are there and are a hub of this information for us is really incredible because if I do have questions, cause I'm not an attorney, then I know that we have excellent legal staff here at DCS that can help us navigate those waters. So I'm glad that y'all are able to consult with case managers and other professionals so that we maintain legality with providing these protections to children and families at DCS and want to encourage all child welfare professionals to use the resources of our legal staff. So thank yes. you.
2: And that yes, I was just going to say that if anyone, you know, for our DCS staff, if you ever have a question about whether or not information can be disclosed or released, please reach out to your legal staff because that's what they're there for is to help you navigate that. There's a lot of statutes that come into play and, and And it's very fact-based as to whether or not information can be released. And so one fact can change whether or not we could provide a record to someone. That's why legal is there to help navigate those, those conversations and help make those decisions.
0: As professionals, it's our responsibility to be aware of them and we know the basics of them. But when, like you said, there are very specifics that could change the outcome, we always just go back to our legal staff and ask those important questions to make sure that we're following statute. Like you said, there's a lot of different laws associated with confidentiality. The maintaining confidentiality of the families that we work with is the law, but it's also important for building trust with the families serve at DCS. And Lindsay Coleman is a master's level social worker who is a leader in this initiative, and she can let us know ways about maintaining confidentiality as also a way to build respect and trust with the citizens we serve, which is equally as important as those legal protections. Ms. Coleman, thank you for joining us. Could you tell our listeners about your role at DCS and some of your experiences as a social worker?
1: Hey, Serena, thanks so much for having us. I'm going on my 18th year at DCS. I'm the Director of Permanency Planning, which Basically, it's a fancy way of saying that I support a lot of our foster care case caring staff and several other programs, including a prevention program. I've worked for the department several different capacities spent a lot of my time in the field supervising foster care case management. I also was a child protective services case manager, a foster care case manager, and a supervised juvenile justice case managers also for a bit. So I've had an opportunity to have experience in all of our different program areas, and I'm happy to be able to. I'm in mean, central office supporting those case managers out in the field.
0: You bring so much experience with direct services to children and families, as well as supporting up-and-coming social workers and case managers in developing a best practices approach to child welfare practice. And this is one of those examples. As we take this deeper dive into confidentiality, how is it impacting our practice as children child welfare professionals, and what are some of the key takeaways about confidentiality and building trust?
1: Sure, and that's a great question. I think that for me, the main takeaway is to really be thoughtful about the information that we're sharing with other people. When I first became a social worker, you even in family meetings and sort of as that advance, you shared all information. So it was, you know, quick and dirty of everything that was going on so that you could make good decisions to keep kids safe. But I think that there's a different way of thinking about that now, and that we really need to be thoughtful about what information we're sharing, how we share that information, and really seeking parents' sort of input and permission and sharing some of that information. And it it really goes back to engaging the family right on the front end, having that genuineness, empathy and respect, helping them really feel like you're there to resolve an issue and to help the family move forward together rather than to punish or to blame or to sort of accuse. And I think that even in situations with Child Protective Services where you're doing a removal or things like that, know, you can have honest conversations with families. I think about a situation when I was in the field where I had having to do removal because the family had tested positive for a variety of different drugs, and we couldn't find any other relative. And we worked together through that. We came back to the office. We had a meeting, child and family team meeting, and I was just very honest, like, help me come up with another solution. Like, we can definitely get you some, some treatment, but help me come up with a different solution. And even though we ultimately had to do removal, that family understood, they weren't happy about it, obviously, and were were sad, but they understood that I was really trying to keep from having to do that and that I really wanted the situation to improve for them. So talking about a drug screen or talking about A&D treatment looked a little different for her than if I hadn't spent the time really talking through it with her. Now, Mm -hmm. that's obviously just a great scenario where families understand you have to do a removal and it doesn't always work that way. But I think just thinking about and engaging somebody, treating somebody the way you would want to be treated really is important and then understanding who's in the family, what the dynamics are, who would have information if there are concerns for different people having information, what are safety issues. Sometimes there's domestic violence where we wouldn't want to release even information that isn't protected. Just really thinking about what families would want and what we would want and treating people the way we would be treated, I think, helps us deal with tricky situations regarding releasing information.
0: Building a family team is one of the ways we facilitate safety, permanency, and well-being for children and families. Ms. Coleman, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the idea of the child and family team meeting, could you briefly explain that process and why confidentiality is important to support families at those meetings?
1: Sure. Child and family teams are basically the team that's identified not only by the family, so you know the child or youth, whoever they identify to be part of the, the group, they certainly uh, can identify for folks, coaches, teachers, church members, or whatever, that they would like to be part of the team. But also, we have parents, all of their informal supports, any relatives we can bring to the table. Obviously, we want to make sure that all parents are included in that. And then there's often other folks included, like attorneys who are assigned to parents, guardian ad litem. If it's a custodial case, or sometimes even if it's a non-custodial case, CASA. Mm -hmm. You know, and then even some of our specialists with the department, like an education specialist, a psychologist, sometimes legals involved, different people can come to the table. But the goal of the meeting is to come together as a team and make decisions. So whether it's a custodial case, a non-custodial case, a probation case, the point Mm -hmm. of that meeting is to come together and make decisions or make plans to move children towards permanency to make sure that they're safe. And so that's the mechanism by which we make decisions. I think that confidentiality is so important, thinking about those types of meetings. So that's where we talk about everything, right? That's where we make our plan, our permanency plan, where we identify the tasks and responsibilities for parents and or others or relatives to reunite with their kids or mm-hmm. non-custodial permanency plans, where we make, you know, service recommendations to keep children out of custody with prevention services. And so we're talking about services in those meetings, right? We're talking about services that are protected under um, the laws that Sammy was talking about a little bit earlier. And and that's why that is such an important part of this process is figuring out how do we manage sharing information with so many different people are at the table and mm. we could potentially be needing to talk about some of these things. And I think that the answer, I've thought a lot about this, and I think a lot of the answer comes with, Doing that preparation, doing that um, prep work for the child and family team. So meeting with families and really explaining, like, this is what this meeting's for. These are the people who are going to be there. Do you have concerns about this? Because we're going to be talking about what we think some of the safety concerns are, and that's, and sometimes could include sharing this piece of information or that piece of information, and do you feel comfortable with that and and, and talking about that and then making decisions with legal based on that because like mm-hmm. Sammy was saying a little bit earlier, I mean, one fact can change if we're required to release or not release and um and I certainly don't want to <laughs> don't want to try to go through um a bunch of different scenarios where that could change and what could change that in every situation, but I think. I know that our legal folks can, can manage that. So we have a conversation with our families before so that we know, like, gosh, mom doesn't really want to share this. And so I can go and say, hey, to my local attorney and say, hey, you know, mom doesn't want to share this information. What do we need to do here? This is why. And, and maybe even make some, some suggestions so that we can say, okay, you know, what are your concerns about sharing some of that information? And maybe it's that the other parent's invited somebody that that one parent doesn't care for, and so then you are creative about having your meetings so that the family does feel comfortable in sharing information. So I think that it's really about doing that preparation work with families, talking about what we think we're going to be talking about saying, hey, this is information that we typically would share, and do you feel comfortable with that? Do you have any concerns about that? And sort of fielding those before you get in the meeting and think, oh, gosh, I'm really, um, I don't know that I have totally discussed this with the parent to say whether or not I can share this information or not.
0: To prepare everyone and tell them what the intention is to understand everyone's concerns. I would want a plan in place to protect my dignity and my health information, so that's a great way of supporting our families and building engagement and facilitating the process because we're there to promote safety for the children. Miss Coleman, you have been with the agency for 18 years. Our agency is always changing, and this may represent somewhat of a change in practice. Do you have any recommendation or ideas for case managers as new changes occur, ways to integrate the new changes into the current practice and let go of old practices that may not be contemporary?
1: You know, we continue to evolve as an agency, as social workers, as time goes on. I mean, I know over the years, sometimes something comes up and I think, oh, gosh, I can't believe we would be doing that. And then, you know, a year later, I think back and think, I can't believe we never did that, you know, before. So I think that, you know, the good news about social workers in general, I think, are are open to change, right? I mean, like, we, we believe in change. If we didn't believe in change, we wouldn't be doing this work. So that's the good news, I think, of this population of employees. But I think just being very open about it and then also thinking about, I think, almost everything that we talk about when policy changes or... And make adjustments. I try to put myself in the position of what would I feel like if I was this customer? What would I feel like if I was this person? How would I want to be treated? And then. accordingly. So, most of the time we make a change like like this, not really so much a change, I think we noticed that maybe not everybody was having the same process of sharing information, and so that's one of the reasons why Sammy and I had suggested to talk about this with staff as this is happening and as other people get on board sharing with others, gosh, you know, would you want that information shared? And just talking about it in that way, I think, really makes it real, and it makes it really, I mean, the reason why we make decisions is because we feel like it's in the best interest of our customers, both internal and external. So I don't have a problem with my peers calling me out. <laughs> I don't think that they have a problem with me doing the same and saying, gosh, you know, I mean, how, how do you think you feel if that was you in that situation and just trying to reframe a policy change to it's really more of a human change. How do we be human instead of, you know, the big, big bad social worker that's, that's trying to um, <laughs> make life changes for families? So that's my recommendation. I don't really know that that's based on any kind of theory, but it's just my personal opinion. I think if we treat people the way we want to be treated and then we talk about policy change in, in that way, that's the reason why we're doing this. Then it makes sense. As I've
0: listened to both of you speak today, I can't can't help but to think about the golden rule.
1: Sammy Mayfair,
0: Lindsay Coleman, thank you both for sharing your time and your expertise and taking a deeper dive into confidentiality and building trust with children and families. Thank you, listener, for your interest about building trust with families through maintaining confidentiality. Please join DCS Talks Again to hear other subject matter experts,
1: discuss ways to advocate for children and build resilient communities.